welcome to this episode of Red Envelope, where we feature innovation from Asia. Our special guest today is Richard Turin, who is based out of Shanghai. Richard is a um, Princeton educated, spent several years in financial services in AIG, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Fitch, and in private equity in Changshu Lu Advisors before joining the uh, Academia in Hulk Business School. He has uh, since then spent time at IBM and has recently launched a very exciting book on Innovation Labs Excellence. Thanks for joining us today, Richard. Arun and Theo, it's a pleasure being here. Happy to, happy to chat and uh, happy to dive in. But I will, only one, one change. I did 18 years in banking. I was 18 oh. years in structured products. So oh my God. It, was, okay. it was a lifetime. So I'm actually dating myself to tell you that I've been, I'm 57 and I've been doing the, I've been doing the banking, the fin or the banking part of fintech for a long time. Thanks for that, Richard. And thanks for joining us from Shanghai today. Uh, so the, uh, let's just start with the kind of warm up question almost. Um, tell us a little bit about your career. What kind of drives you today? What's, what's got you to this point? And some of the career uh, transitions you've had, it's, it's, it's simply amazing from financial services to the academia and then now a published author. It's, it's varied yeah. and interesting. Well, how about this? You know, um, I'd like, to, you know, in, in somewhere, I think in the preface to my book, I put that my career is that of an innovator in the sense that it was never a straight line. And if you're looking to hire innovators and if you're looking for people who are innovative, please don't find somebody who lockstep went from thing to thing. So I look, I make no qualms about it. I did a lot of uh, changes in my life, mostly based on the economics of the time. I did, um, as I mentioned, I did 18 years working in structured products and finance, always, however, in the innovation side of the business where I basically worked with a team of lawyers or my team of lawyers, coders, and mathematicians, and we designed new structured products. So think about it this way. It was pre-internet um, socialization of everything, but it was during the period of the 90s where we were able to calculate using our PCs all kinds of neat new stuff, calculate the price of things, calculate what risk was worth. And we used all of the and the, the, the digital tools of that time to remap finance, which is, you know, the big derivative boom and everything that happened. And it all was great until around 2008 when people like me no longer had a job. So, you know, my career went pretty well as long as the financial markets were fine. And then obviously after 2008, um, a change was required. I had been to Shanghai back in 2003 and I loved it. I really, really loved it here. So um, financial crisis hit. There were many people in New York, infinitely more talented than me that were unemployed. And I said, okay, I'm out of here. I was doing, when I was a young man, I was doing a PhD. I didn't finish it. So I loved teaching and I loved academics. I came to um, Shanghai um, and I worked in an, as an advisor for a while. And I eventually picked up a teaching uh, position at M Holt International School of Business, which was a lot of fun. So um, a lot of the changes in my life um, were based on finance. I didn't finish my PhD because um, a mathematician at Princeton in his first 
professor professorial job would might clock sixty thousand dollars a year in 1987 i know it seems a long time ago but um you know your first bonus check was bigger than that when you left uh, academics and went on to wall street in the, into the boom, booming derivatives market so my career is based on economic changes and of course 2008 the financial crisis 2010 being the biggest the biggest crisis that i've lived through and hope never to live through again so yeah um done a lot of stuff but you know really what's relevant for recently is that i've been at ibm you know where they needed people who understood finance to come in and work with technology. And, you know, that was my forte in banking. So I was happy to do it for them. That is such a fascinating journey. And, and, and I do love watching people when, when they switch to Korea. You know, I, I think especially is more true so now and likely in the future than we used to, especially since, you know, we have a much longer career path, if you will, right? We're all working longer. So it's, uh, and, and I think the same can be said with Arun and myself as well. So, but uh, so let's talk a little bit about your new Adopt at Home China, right? Where a lot of times when we talk about, or when we watch with Envy from over here, we're seeing the 40 trillion plus mobile payments last year, which if you look at that compared to the amount we get with just credit card transactions globally, that far exceeds that. So yeah. can you, <laughs> it, it, it's just mind blowing every time we think of it. So that market is definitely fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in China, your journeys in China and an inside of you since you live there, why sure. it's so special? Look, um, yeah, you hit it. The numbers are, astounding and anybody who is looking at China from abroad looks at it and says, you know, what is going on here? So let me help with that a little. I got here in 2010 and that was pre WeChat Pay and Alibaba was of course a great company already. Um, but it was before the explosion um, in FinTech. And around 2014, if memory serves, the um, China Banking Commission allowed both Alibaba and um, WeChat to have limited electronic banking licenses. So one of the things that we talk about in the West is, well, what will happen if Facebook, what will happen if Amazon, what will happen if one of the GAFA companies gets a banking license? Well, we know the answer already. That happened in China. Big tech platforms got banking licenses and the rest is history. Um, um, so to keep it in perspective, um, you have to imagine that in China in 2015, 16, WeChat had just begun with some pay. I don't remember when the exact date when it went live was. Somebody will tell me, but. By the time 2016 arose, I was using it very, very rarely, and it was like a toy, all right? So I'm living in a city of 30 million people. I work in tech every day, and I say, this is nice. And if you'd asked me in 2016, when is it that this is going to take off? How long will it take for this to penetrate the market? I'd say, ah, I'll give it five or 10 years. No. 
by the time 2000, about two and a half years later, by the time 2018, 19 rolled around, call it two to three years, doesn't matter how, how accurate it is. A city of 30 million people had gone cashless. It happened so fast that it's beyond belief. So living in China um, and seeing this happen around you is um, really quite remarkable. Um, you watch things that people talk about in the West happen before your very eyes and at a speed of adoption that is remarkable. Um, partially because these are big tech companies. You know, look at us, look at a quote, a fintech in Singapore. You know, it's two guys in a computer. Forgive me for being a little sarcastic, right? But fintech in China is Alibaba is is Ant Financial, a multi-billion dollar company with tens of thousands of employees. So you're you know you're looking at um, fintech at a scale that we can that in the West we can barely perceive of something that massive. So uh, China, a lot of fun, very interesting, and it's um, ha all happening at a speed to which most of us are unaccustomed to. And that's the message. So it's, it's an interesting place to be. Thanks for that, Richard. Um, one of the observations that I've, I've made over the last uh, two to three years is despite the successes of uh, Alibaba and Tencent in China, um, their global expansion has been quite, kind of quiet. I mean, I wouldn't say a disaster, but largely quiet. So uh, they have taken stakes in Paytm, Grab, and a few other um, Asian fintech stories. Um, um, however, when you look at the West, uh, there's not been uh, much of success. I mean, there's been talk about uh, Alibaba and Tencent following the Chinese tourism uh, to provide some financial services for them when they are elsewhere um, in, in other parts of the world. But apart from that, there's not been a, a, a robust international expansion plan. Uh, what are your thoughts around this? Yeah, um, look to Southeast Asia first. The expansion is happening, but it's happening in sort of a way that is more stealthy than you would think. All right. So um, let's look at the positive points. All right. Let's look at the very visible things like Hong Kong, the virtual banking licenses that both um, uh, that Ant Financial and, and Tencent WeChat have. So look, that's the first very obvious foray into Western markets. And um, once they figure that out and, and you know, become proficient in those markets, you, you know, they'll have a template or a pattern that they can take anywhere. But you have to look um, at how they're expanding. So WeChat is a huge investor in Nubank, which is big in Brazil and Mexico. You know, they're also investors in Europe. They're investing all over the place. And in um, Teo and my beloved Singapore, where I lived for two and a half years, you know, they bought Lazada. You don't know, when you click on Lazada, you don't know that it's owned by Alibaba. There's no outward sign that says, oh, by the way, you know, we're owned by, you know, it's just, it's a company, you use it, it's, for all intents and purposes, it's local. So 
Newbank, um, they're, you know, WeChat's big investment in Newbank. You know, let's see where that goes in some years. Let's see what kind, what happens with the ability to flip a switch and turn on some of WeChat services on Newbank New or, or for that matter, for Ubank, a Newbank to borrow some of their tech. Um, so it's happening. Um, it's also happening, as you mentioned, with the acceptance of Alipay and WeChat Pay in um, foreign countries. So, you know, if I look now, when I go buy United Airlines tickets, hey, I, you know, do you want to pay with Alipay or WeChat Pay pops up now? Alipay for sure. WeChat, I'm not, I have to, I'd have to double check on that. But I know Alipay, I saw the window because I called my wife over. I said, look, I can buy United Airlines tickets with, you know, with Ali now. So their expansion um, into receiving funds from Chinese is stealthy. It's there, but they're in CVS drugstores all throughout the United States. They're in um, small towns in Italy or tourist towns in Italy where you can start to see that um, Ali and WeChat Pay have reached out to the local banking networks and say, okay, you can offer this to your, um, to your, your um, uh, commercial clients who have point of sale systems. So yeah, they're making, they're making more headway than you think. And please do not forget the very high profile purchase of MoneyGram in the UK. How much, you know, after failing with MoneyGram, they bought Alibaba bought World First. I got the order wrong here. But look, so Alibaba wanted to buy MoneyGram. It was deemed un, you know, an unacceptable sale by the United States government. So what? We're going to go buy World First in the UK. That's massive. So, and it's coming in a very organic, stealthy, but consistent mode. Remember, this is, these are companies that have phenomenal resources. They're not resource constrained. It's just a matter of waiting to buy the right piece at the, you know, and I wouldn't even say at the right price because if they overpay, who cares? You know, I don't want to, that's obviously an exaggeration. I'm sure they care, but my point is they can afford to buy whatever it is they want if it's the right fit for them. And they will go around the world and bit by bit pick up these different pieces. No question about it. Um, so virtual banks in Hong Kong, Newbank, uh, Paytm in India, HelloPay in Singapore, right? Um, Kakao Messaging, which just got a best, uh, which just got a uh, banking license in South Korea. So they're slowly going everywhere, and and, and, and N twenty six in Europe as well, right? So um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, they're doing a lot of expansion. And, you know, and don't forget Southeast Asia. Don't forget Malaysia and Thailand, where WeChat in particular has um, WeChat in Thailand did really well. WeChat, I think, in, in Malaysia had, a, had some bumps. But, you know, they're there. And, they're, and, and they provide solutions that fundamentally work for, um, for the population, um, whether they're going to beat Indian tech, because Indian tech is really good in there, you know, what they're going to do in the home market, you know, I don't know, we'll, it'll, it'll be a fight. We'll see what happens. But they will be there in some way, sure. I was um, actually surprised to see um, WeChat uh, yesterday in Amsterdam airport 
And, um, and when I was getting tickets for a museum in Amsterdam, I saw one of the uh, payment methods was Alipay. So that, that took me by surprise, right? I think in some ways, uh, we, we, live in, we live in a bubble in the West as much as people live in a different bubble in the East. Um, and, and, you know, those two do coincide um, slowly and or- organically. It will be very interesting to see where that works. Yeah, you know, I want to go back to an example with uh, Union Pay. I don't remember the year exactly, but Union Pay had a had a problem with Visa MasterCard. They decided they were going to do their own network. And, you know, I had this Union Pay card and I'm in my hometown in Italy, which is small. You know, year one, I can't year, use it. Year two, you know, I don't know. I still can't use it. Year three, I can use it at one cash machine. You know, four or five years later, Union Pay is now at every cash machine in my small town in Italy. And I'm not talking about Milan or Rome, one of the big, you know, one of the big cities. So, you know, Union Pay is a massive company. They have large resources. If they're going to build a network out, sure, they're going to do it. And, you know, it's the same thing that with, with um, Alibaba and Tencent. They're going to build these networks out. And it'll happen, you see, because most of us, don't have union pay cards. It happens quietly and you don't notice it. And you noticed it, Tao, when you went to Schiphol Airport yeah. and you saw the green sign. It was and a big you, green sign. <laughs> right. But if you weren't from Singapore or you weren't from fintech world where these are big name companies, to most Europeans, when they see the WeChat, does it even register to them? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, and, and I think their strategy outside of China is, is very interesting, right? Like the, you mentioned, you know, the, the purchases or the investment in different big companies, as well as, you know, from a retailer and Walgreens everywhere. So I, I think it's slowly going. They have a different way of going about it. Um, but I don't, I don't see a way to stop them, nor a need to stop them, right? Because that, that's, where, that's where a lot of these innovation is interesting, is to prompt us to think of things differently. So when we're talking about innovation, you know, certainly you, you have backgrounds in both the East and the West, and, um, you know, there's no lack of innovation, if you will, but different ways of doing innovation, different ways of regarding innovation. So what are some of the reality shocks and takeaways that you think we should gain from what's going on in Asia and Southeast Asia? Because certainly if you look at FinTech, right, I wouldn't say the most exciting things are happening in the West. Wow. Um, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but it is true though, right? You know, innovation isn't talking about, oh, let's, you know, create a, a separate uh, digital app of this big incumbent bank um, without really thinking about exactly who the audience is and what do they need and look at the failed experiment. They have to shut it down recently. Or like, you know, offering quote unquote a millennial um, fintech option and saying, oh, we're going to reach out to the younger demographics by letting them customize the color again. Okay, look, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's really, that's a really great example. You were just referencing the closure of Finn, JP Morgan's millennial um, institution. Um, look, uh, let, let's, let's have some fun and let me be controversial, okay? And um, the incumbent banks and the credit card system have a lock on the financial systems in the United States and Europe. So much so that they have been predominantly throwing the brakes on innovation. <laughs> so 
what is the incentive for a credit card company to get you to use your cell phone? All right, think about it for a moment. Look at the WeChat system. Think about the genius of this or the Alipay. I've got a QR code. I can print it out on a computer piece of paper, right? I don't, if, I, if I'm a, if I'm a uh, point of, if I'm a retailer with a point of sale, I, uh, with point of sale system, and that in China could mean a guy selling dumplings on the road. All he has to do is print out his QR code, right? Does he need hardware? Does he have to go to his credit card company? Does he have to get a new uh, near-field communication POS system? And, and Tio, you should really love this because when we, we, up until you know, recently in, in Singapore, when I go to buy a cup of coffee, they have four or five of these POS systems all dedicated to a different tap card. So you have to figure yes. out which, 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 P and each one of these boxes, each one of these boxes, what, they're three or 400 bucks a pop. You know, they're, they're not cheap. You know, I saw that when I was just re recently there and uh, for money to into an agent, I was like, oh my goodness, how do you guys function? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So my point is to say this. The luck that the credit card and incumbent banks have on the financial system in the U.S. and Europe has caused a reduction or a slowing of adoption of new technology. So the, and they could do it because they were big. A fintech in the United States is in 99, you know, the fintechs, maybe some of them now might are, are unicorns and have ample, ample funds. But, you know, four or five years ago, there weren't that many fintech unicorns who could dare to take on a bank or a credit card processing company in their home market. But here in China, we had major tech companies. We had WeChat and Alibaba, and they had the resources to take on all the banks. And yes, there was not a well-developed credit card market in China. So let me go back to your original question. When you ask me about the differences in innovation in China, in fintech particularly, and, and compare it and contrast it with the United States and Europe, um, my number one point is that innovation has been stifled by large um, large entities, which are essentially monopolies in the market. Uh, and those are both the incumbent banks and the credit card processors. And they have slowed the adoption of new payment technologies. Only now partnering with some of um, the newer payment platforms to try to bolster their goods. In China, there were no credit card companies. Yes, there's union pay, but credit cards were not well disseminated. So you couldn't fight. There was nobody to fight. Tech companies swept into a vacuum and went for it. But now let me get a little more. That's the bigger picture. So you've got innovation, fintech innovation driven by highly purpose-driven tech companies that just did miraculous things. Um, and, you know, Uebao, the, 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 the money management platform where I could do my, my, micro investment, you know, mind blowing stuff. It's the biggest mutual fund on the planet now. But there's another critical difference. When I look at the way that the Chinese guys develop and launch products here, and I look at the way it is in the United States, um, which is my home for development, not more so than Europe, 
Um, you know, guys in the United States are, look, we have to get this perfect. It has to be a newer. Um, is this something worthy of press releases? You know, it's like there's all of this external stuff that you have to get. In China, it's more like this is an idea. I think it's a good idea. Let's fling the idea onto the wall. If it sticks and people work with it, great. And, you know, you'll see um, even the likes of Alibaba and WeChat trying stuff that fails and they pull it down in a hurry. It's maybe not beautiful. People say, oh, the WeChat interface is so crappy. They could do so much better job. Who cares? Everybody uses it. It's already the de facto standard whether the interface has gone through billions of hours of testing or not. Who cares? Everybody's using it. But what you'll see in innovators here is trying stuff. Maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it's not beautiful. Throwing it out into the marketplace. Oh my God, I got 50,000 people using it in two months. Make it better. We'll then spend more money. You do not see the, I have to make this interface perfect. I have to get this product 100%. You, feel, you see teams of tech people running stuff to market as fast as possible to see if they can get first mover advantage. And if it's not pretty or if it's not perfect, it's still good enough. Let's go with it. It's, it's a really dynamic environment, very, very different um, on a more primitive level than what you see in the West. Does that answer your question? I know that's long and it's a little bit roundabout. I apologize. No, 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 no. I, I, think, I think you touched on a point. Is I think it's the, the attitude of it, right? The attitude towards innovation, the attitude of no, it's just, you know, how we're raised, um, the the upbringing or would it be because um, just how we're educated or the availability of capital, right? I, I think a lot of that does into play when, when you see that when resources are more scarce, you tend to do things differently. You tend to try harder. You try to make things work um, in ways that, you know, if, if, if resources are more abundant, you wouldn't. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. So we, 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 we touched upon this point in the Pakistan episode as well, uh, didn't we, uh, Theo, uh, about frugal innovation, um, keeping it simple, uh, basic, uh, but just keeping it really super lean um, um, and, and trying to uh, achieve scale through the like, huge consumer base that, that, you, that is at disposal. So one of the things I always keep telling to um, um, when, I, when I talk, meet my uh, entrepreneur friends there in, in India, um, one of the things we always talk about is how how important um, IP and, and and differentiation is for a for a for an innovative company in the West. Whereas in India, people don't think about all that. If there is a basic simple idea that will change lives, they just get onto the market with it. And uh, I have known so many just making millions doing just simple simple stuff. 
I think that's it's a philosophical difference in the way they go about innovating. Um, on that point, Richard, um, uh, we we must talk about your book. So um, <laughs> please, hey, why don't we talk about my book? I, you know what I love to talk about? How about my book? <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about it because uh, uh, it's it's an interesting topic, right? Um, interesting topic in the sense that corporates for forever have struggled to innovate, and for me personally, it's I've, I've, I keep shouting about this. It's it's a cultural challenge more than anything else. Um, but but tell us about your journey. What did you learn through the book uh, in in the process of writing the book, and what what does it, what what was your key takeaways from that? Yeah, sure. Um, look. The book was born um, out of me being older. And I, and I know that's sort of a strange comment, but I was working in IBM's innovation labs and I headed a group of people, 14 building FinTech stuff. And my clients were other innovation labs. They came because they wanted to see what IBM technology had, was like and how they could use Watson and all that stuff. And I had been working in the banking innovation space for my, the entirety of my career. I, from the very day that I walked onto the trading floor and proposed like a product idea, people said, no, you can't do it. It's stupid, whatever. I've, I've been hearing that my entire life. I'm used to it. So when I was talking to my clients, predominantly in Singapore, many of them were young people and many of them were absolutely miserable. They were unhappy. They were working in labs. They couldn't get their projects approved. They couldn't get budgets to buy. You know, I'd say, look, we'll do a, pro we'll do a POC with you for Watson. You know, it'll cost you 100000 And they look at me and they say, an innovation lab with a budget of 100000 Are you kidding me? Never. You know, we don't. <laughs> One went as far as to tell me that they could only afford to buy um, Click, you know, the analytics program Click. They could only buy one copy of Click for their computers. That's how you know tight their budget was. But my point is to say that um, I was talking to a lot of young people in labs. They were very unhappy, and many of the things that they were experiencing were firsts for them in their life and in their career. And for me having worked in innovation and finance my entire career, I'm like, this is normal. What you're, what you're living through is the way it's supposed to be. And they're like, no, you're kidding me. It's supposed to be like this. I go, yeah, that's, that's the way banks work. Yeah, you, you. So, but in reality, there was a real mismatch. And okay, so first thing is if you talk to 40 labs and you talk to two or three people in each of these labs, the stories start to repeat themselves. They're not unique. Now, if you're 30 or 25 and you're working in a lab, that story is the first time that's happened to you. And you're not, you're not talking to somebody in another lab. So you're not aware that the other labs all have the same pro problem. But I was sort of a nexus point, combined with the fact that I had been in innovation, for my entire career. So um, I said, look, let me write a book. Let me, let, me put some, let me put some best practices together so everybody can get on the same page and have some idea of how to make, what makes these labs work better. 
it's not a set of rules. I don't try to say, do this, do this, do this. You can't, all labs are different. They all have different reasons for being and different missions. But, so I don't believe in rules, but you can come up with what are called best practices and you can choose which of these best practices to use or not to use. Um, and what surprised me is that nobody had ever really looked at innovation labs and done it before. You know, so it's, it's sort of interesting. You can Google search. It's like the only book on how to run an innovation lab, which is sort of nice. I'm quite, quite proud of that. But um, the book really came from wanting to help young people be less miserable. And hopefully, you know, oh, by the way, I would then talk to their management and the management wasn't happy either because they're like, well, look, we bought these innovative people, but they're not bringing us innovation. And I'd say, look, you, you know, it's not like you're buying a can of soup and you open it and you get the soup, you know, it's, it's something you have to wait for. So um, there was, um, there were a lot of problems to be solved. And, you know, I just genuinely hope that the book goes out there, causes lab managers, or is the people who are C-level responsible for the lab to understand what the lab can do and have a conversation with the people in the lab. And then the people who are the clients of the lab and the business units, and they're the ones I have the most sympathy for because they, they, you know, they wanted to be a banker or an insurance guy. They didn't want to be an innovator, but now they're forced to work with an innovation lab. I hope it creates conversations and I hope all those conversations make for a smoother innovation experience for everyone. I, I can't agree more. I, I think, you know, for the past few years, as I look at various big corporates trying to do innovation, um, a couple of years ago, I called it innovation petting zoo. Right. It is literally like <laughs> just put a bunch of people in there and you know, in a really cool space, right? God knows how much money all of these guys put into just decorating it. Um, create a mini minimalist feel, make it look like a startup, put some young people in there, have a really great coffee machine, and here go innovate. Doesn't work like that, right? <laughs> and 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 the and one of the greatest um examples I've seen quite a bit, and I'm sure you do too, Richard, is uh, then you'll have all these executives who get, you know, taken through a, a, a tour of innovation lab and say, oh, let's see how other people innovate. Really? Like, okay, just put them in glass doors and glass offices. And that, that doesn't make people innovative either. It's, it's a lot more than that. You know, <laughs> it's a lot more than that. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, just beside myself because I've seen, I mean, look, the, the example I gave you earlier of the company that had the, the, the lab that had trouble buying software, they had so little money that it was difficult for them to go purchase stuff. Meanwhile, you're right. The coffee machine, the foosball table and the beautiful environment cost the company they spent more for the designers. How about this? For the designer for the space and for the fittings, they could have paid for a real artificial intelligent POC run by IBM in conjunction with their labs. Now, I get it that you don't want to put young people into a dark, dingy basement. I get that. You know, I'm not saying that you should be like, you know, have terrible places. But... 
I, ready? Steve Jobs, he worked in the garage with Wozniak. It wasn't like they weren't creative because they were in their mother's garage, okay? So you can't tell me that the beauty of the coffee machine and the open space is directly correlated to creativity because that's bull. So I couldn't agree you more with you more about this, the, the space. I love the term that you come up with, with petting zoo, because that's exactly what it is. You trot the executives out and, you know, and then they, uh, you know, the execs come out and then they see the chat bot that doesn't work. What I, here's, here's what you call, it's a, you call it a petting zoo. What I call many of them are zombie projects. And I call them zombies because these are the projects that are still somewhat alive. They're living dead, all right? So it's a project that sucks some small amount of resource out of the innovation team just so that they can keep it alive to demo it. But the team doesn't, you know, the team may only be five or 10 people. So if you've got five or so of these demo, demo zombie projects, you've got to devote time to keeping them going and they suck resource and time out just so that you can give tours. Yep. All right. So it's an, it is an absurdity and you've seen it. I've seen it. Um, we all have seen it. And I'm, I'm grateful when I go to one of these places and they have like the free coffee machine and the free munchies. Cause that's, those are my favorite ones. Cause at least I can say I got free lunch on it, but you know, it's, um, it's shockingly bad and it's repeated over and over and over again. Let's look at why. The same executives, senior C-level executives that are very frugal and or very aware of what their business units are doing and run them very, um, I don't want to say micromanage them, but they at least are aware of them, manage them, and are very hands-on, right? Tend to take an approach with innovation of the approach they take is, we don't know about innovation. I don't know what to do with these guys and these people anyway. So let's just put them there. And if something happens good in a year or so, that'll be fine. So because they just don't have the tools or understand what, the, what to expect, what limitations and restrictions to put on a lab, and how to manage them reasonably. Look, I'm not saying that you can manage the, the lab the same way you can one of your business units. You can't. You can't just be looking at their quarterly sales or whatever. It's a whole different business. Um, the goal of my book is to get people to understand that this business has management practices, best practices that can be applied. And if you do apply them, everybody will be a little happier. The, the, the senior uh, C-level management will know what, how to get their uh, lab, what to expect from their lab, what is a reasonable expectation. Now, here's another great one. Code. Can you guys code up a new product for us? And I'm, and I'm looking at a bunch of guys at an innovation lab having to try to write production-based code, you know, which is, you know, coming from IBM, something where a team of 500 guys is, you know, is working somewhere to, you know, to build up. And I'm like, hold it. They want you to produce the actual code. Oh, yeah. And I said, that's not a reasonable expectation. So again, people don't know or manager, C-level managers don't know what is or is not a reasonable expectation for a lab. So give them some guidance and all of our life will be better. 
And that's the purpose for the book. Make people happy, make expectations reasonable. And my favorite, if, if I had one thing, it would be, I'd have a copy of my book in every lab so that the lab people could then open it up and put a yellow highlighted and say, before you complain about this project, could you please read this passage first? <laughs> right? They might end up highlighting the whole book. <laughs> oh, maybe, oh, oh, hold on. That'd be great. They could buy different books. from. Uh, they could buy multiple books. Ready? Anybody listening, I think you should own many copies of this book in your lab so you can highlight a different chapter depending on which manager is coming down to complain about the level of innovation. Yes, and say this is not a shiny new toy. Um, so on the topic of book, and since we are in the podcast episode about books, let's talk about your next project before we wrap up. Um, if you can talk about it, game over. Sure. Why China's fintech can't be beat. Sure. Um, the book is, um, title, is tentatively titled, um, it's already got to change the title, but the book is really, is so far called Game Over colon and the original title working title was how why china fintech can't be beat and i'm i think i'm going to make it spin it a little more po positively so it's game over question mark how to beat china fintech because really the issue is going to be what are western companies going to do when let's just imagine um and i'll put a name on it um you know, let's just imagine one of these virtual banks really does take off. You know, the one of the, let's say one of the big Hong Kong virtual banks, Alibaba, WeChat, who cares whose it is, they really start taking off. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going to adapt yourself to that threat? So what I'm going to do is talk about, in the book a lot about fintech in China and what it's about and how it, where it comes from and many of the differences we talked about tonight. Um, and I'm going to try to build a bridge um, to people in, in finance in the West to say, look, this is where they are superior or this is where they have an edge. How are you going to counter that? And um, um, that's going to be the fun part of the book. And actually, it's going to be an interesting format. I'm going to, um, I'm going to, my, my hero is a man I worked with briefly named Nicholas Nassim Taleb from Black Swan fame. And he puts his books, he puts the early chapters of his books up on Twitter to capture comments. And what I'm going to do with my book now is I'm going to put a chapter or a portion of, portion of a chapter up on LinkedIn and solicit comments on it. And then the comments will eventually go into the round of edits and hopefully it'll be a better product for everybody. But one of the problems I had or that I found when I was writing Innovation Lab Excellence is, well, where to get feedback? So I turned to a couple of my friends and I sent them early copies, draft versions. But... Um, I think going to the um, going to um, my connections and people like you who read and we all we all contribute to one another's work. Um, you know, a couple of comments like, "Hey, you're missing this," or "You should have this," or "Why not that?" 
you know, that could really have a, a, a really positive impact on the end quality of the book that I'm going to produce. So that's the, that's the coming project. Um, it's, you know, we're not talking about six months from now. I'm talking about a year, you know, so it's, it's, it's got chapters one and two written and they're, they're going to go up in the next couple of weeks. Wow. Uh, Richard, are you covering the social credit system in the book? <laughs> um, you know, I'm happy to talk about social credit and look, depending on our time cuts, um, you might want to do this at a later date, but I'll, um, I'll be very happy to talk about it. Um, but in brief, um, I will say this. You are rated in the West, in the U.S., in Europe. You are rated and scored for credit in more ways than you can ever, than the Chinese government could ever dream of. Okay? So, um, I understand that it's a highly controversial pro uh, program. I understand that. Um, because it's being done by a government. Now, hold on a second. You are all have credit scores, not done by your government, but by third parties with algorithms that have no, they have no reason to tell you how they're scoring you. It, it's, all conf it's all confidential to them and you have no input and you're being scored that way, ready? For your credit system, you're being scored that way, ready? For your mileage points, how much you fly is a score. For the internal... Internal Revenue Service in the United States, the tax bureau, you're scored as to the likelihood of being audited. So there are already dozens of scores that you have that the Chinese haven't even come close to. So then the argument really quickly is, well, but you could be denied services. Okay, fine. Walk into a hospital with no, in the United States, with a credit card and no insurance. And they look at your credit card and it's not the, you know, the Sapphire American Express. They swipe and they say, you got crap credit score. See how, see how much treatment you get. Go ahead. So, yeah. Or try to buy a car with a bad credit score. You know, so there's, I understand the argument and there's, and I'd love to talk with you about it more. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an apologist or a defender, but what I do say is that, you are scored equivalently in the West, but you don't realize it. And ready? Now, this is a switch. For all of the negative talk about China privacy on the Internet, again, you live, in the, you live with the illusion of Internet privacy in the West, but you have no greater privacy than the typical Chinese system, uh, citizen does, but you just do not understand that. I love that line, illusion of privacy. Um, I think it hits the nail on the head. <laughs> and with that, thank you, Richard, for the fascinating and engaging conversation. And we do look forward to doing another episode definitely soon when, um, on, on your next book and more. Sure. I look forward to it. I can't wait to chat. It's a lot of fun meeting you both. And um, I look forward to hearing from you both on LinkedIn. I love seeing your posts and I love hearing your comments and I love commenting, commenting back. So great Let's nice to meet in person next time too. Okay. Great. All right. Cheers, Thank Richard. you so much. Cheers.